0: Divine Mercy Radio is a listener-supported radio station. This program, and others like it, are made possible by you. If you enjoy the content, please click the Donate button and support us. Thank you. Good morning and welcome to this local production of Divine Mercy Radio. I am Bill Gent. Our program is called Treasures of Faith. It's Friday, which we devote to apologetics and I'm here in the studio with Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel. But Father Jeremiah, you kind of missed us the last couple of weeks. I just wanted to let our listeners catch up with what's new.
1: Yeah, it's been sad to be away for so long. Uh, last week, we had the great opportunity of taking uh, our seventh and eighth graders from St. Joseph Catholic School in Palm Bay up to Washington, D.C. for that trip. You know, a lot of eighth graders uh, love going up to D.C., and it's become quite a tradition in our nation in that grade to take them. Up there, And so that's what we did. And we were there for four days, got to see President Trump, got to see a beautiful ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, among many other wonderful things. The week before, I was supposed to be here, however. (laughs) And what had happened is that I was an hour behind on my schedule. And so uh, I I was doing some work after mass and I wanted to leave at 10.05 to come here to the radio station. And I announced it to my staff, said, you know, I'm headed out to the radio station. And one of them said, you're late. And I said, what do you mean I'm late? She goes, it's 11.05. And I said, no, it's 10.05. And I looked down at my watch, and sure enough, it was 11.05. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I was so embarrassed because I, I pride myself on being at everything I'm scheduled for and not being late. And so uh, I was, walked down the stairs, and I was really frustrated with myself and not being able to be there. And I didn't even know I was late, so I couldn't even give you notice. And the phone rang. And it was a call from one of the hospice houses, and one of their patients uh, had had a heart attack, and he was actively dying. And the other priest in the area couldn't be found, and Father Emmanuel was here at the radio station. And if I had been here at the radio station Mm -hmm. too, there would have been no priest uh, Mm -hmm. to be with this man for Mm -hmm. his last rites and Mm -hmm. to help him on his journey home to the Father's house. Uh, When I finished last rites, he died about five minutes later. And so my memory lapse and my misreading of the clock just went to show, uh, 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 to serve God's need in that time. You know, the providence of God is amazing. Had I been here, the man would have died without last sacraments and unprovided for death that we talk about. And so uh, I just wanted to tell the story because I think that it is amazing to consider the providence of God, that God orchestrates all of human history and even our lapses and mistakes Mm. to create these moments in time for people who need them most. A thousand things could have put my derriere in the chair here that Friday, but God's will put me in that hospital room on Friday. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah.
2: That's called divine
1: providence. That's called divine divine providence. Providence.
0: We do believe in that, don't Mm. we, gentlemen? We got some interesting questions this. this morning. This is Apologetics Friday. And I'm here in the studio with Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel. So we got the A team here today. And I've got an interesting question. I thought we would begin uh, with this. Uh, someone recently read that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has released a new document on the nature of salvation. So I don't know if, whether it's anything new, but emphasizing that man cannot be saved through his own efforts alone nor without reference to others. And so, setting the facts straight, the CDF explains that salvation consists in being incorporated into a communion of persons that participates in the communion of the Trinity. Father Jeremiah, is this a new teaching of the Church, and how does this differ from what
1: uh, most Protestants believe? Okay, so no, this is not a new teaching of the church at all. So yesterday, basically, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a letter to the bishops of the world to clarify two points that Pope Francis often preaches about. Pope Francis often preaches against what he calls neo-Pelagianism and neo-Gnosticism, and so basically, this document, which is meant to help and clarify the work of bishops in defending the Catholic faith, uh, is addressing that. It's a short document, fifteen paragraphs. Uh, it's titled uh, Placuit Deo. And really, it it reaffirms the Catholic doctrine of salvation, that uh, we don't earn salvation. We can't create salvation for ourselves. Uh, We cooperate with God's grace, but God is the giver of salvation. Uh, And it has its origin in him, not in ourselves. Uh, So the classic doctrine of works is still there, that by God's grace, we cooperate with God's grace. And in cooperating with God's grace, our works are graced and therefore Uh, meritorious in that sense, but we don't create or earn salvation for ourselves. And so uh, the Neo-Pelagianism that he sees is this tendency of people to believe that they can work for their own salvation, right? That they themselves by their actions create salvation. This is a a, a very simply put the doctrine of Pelagius, whom St. Augustine fought against all the time. Uh, The other tendency that the Pope sees is this sort of hyper Gnosticism, right? Mm. This life of the individual, this life of the spirit. And and this is very much in some ways uh, part of our Protestant culture, right? That salvation is just about me and Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's just about my personal relationship with Mm. the Lord. But that's not what God does. God always creates. When he reveals himself to man, he creates a covenant community, and he saves a body. Right? When he reached out to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, he built out of Jacob a covenant people of 12 tribes. And insofar as you were in those 12 tribes by the virtue of circumcision and the living of Torah, you were part of God's salvific body. Well, in Christ we have the new Israel, the church that is God's covenant body in Christ. And so, uh, in so far as we are in that body, namely the one holy Catholic and apostolic church and cooperating with God's grace, we're saved, but we're not saved without that reference to the whole body. Mm -hmm. And so basically what this document is trying to get at is to help the Pope clarify what he's saying that no, You don't create salvation for yourself. It is a free gift from the Lord uh, to raise you up that you then cooperate with. And that salvation is not something that's individual. Principally, it is corporate. Uh, We are saved when we come into this covenant body of the Lord. You
0: know, Father, having come from the evangelical world and having my own churches and where there was an oversimplification of the gospel, and you mentioned Uh, just the me and Jesus kind of thing. You know, it's amazing that when I came back to the Catholic Church, I was amazed in my work at the parish how many Catholics are still kind of hung up on this idea they have to work their way to heaven. And so you address this. You know, it's not works and it's not faith. It's faith and works. It's not either or. It's both.
1: Why do you think that Catholics get so caught up in this work salvation thing? Well, I think uh, poor catechetics in the beginning, right? Not understanding what we mean by works or graced works. Um, and I think secondarily, it's easier to do a task mm. than it is to build a relationship. Mm. You mm. know, uh, what, what is easier to do at night? To wash the dishes or to sit down and talk about a strenuous day and mm. figure out a harmonizing of hearts with your spouse? Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we have poor catechesis and then we have the human tendency to take the road less traveled Uh, because relationship does what? If I'm just doing tasks, I can check it off. Right. But relationship makes a demand on me. Takes real work, real work. Right. And so if I'm in a relationship, I, I have certain natural obligations of love towards the lover of my soul. And that requires a higher moral walk. So, Father, just to clarify, because I think
0: some Catholics think, perhaps, that the Church has changed its teaching on this, and yet, in reality, historically, we have never
1: taught a work-based salvation. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So, I mean, we can look back to the epistle of James, you know, and James explains that, uh, you know, faith and works are really two sides of the same coin, and, and that the works we do are not... Uh, the works of the flesh, right, building blocks that we have, but but that our relationship with God that was wounded by original sin is made whole again, right? So the deficiencies that I once have, I do not now have. And so when I cooperate with God's grace, it could be said that my works are impregnated, if you will, with the meritorious nature of Christ's own work, uh, which is my salvation. So uh, it is it is Christ working in and through me with my cooperation. So it could be said in some ways that the actions that I do that are meritorious are at one and the same time uh, my work and Christ's work together. We do it together.
0: You and I had the experience in the evangelical world that salvation was sort of understood as a one-time static event and yet in reality i mean we know that what the church has always taught is that salvation is a process we uh seem to exhibit faith from you know one act of faith to another as the book of romans teaches mm-hmm. but sometimes it's just a little difficult for us as americans we want to know we want to nail things down and Uh, have things uh, you know made certain for us yet in reality this is not what the church has ever taught this one-time conversion
1: approach that's exactly right and so you know basically there is a moment in the waters of baptism where where we are born again right so there's this moment of contact with the triune majesty of almighty god uh, where the grace of christ uh, is infused into our soul but that is just the beginning, right? That, that moment of salvation becomes a lifetime of being saved, right? We, we were saved. We are saved. And by God's grace, we will be saved. And so what is salvation? I mean, literally, um, you know, the, the Greek word soter uh, means a healer, right? So in, in Latin, we speak of salvatio or uh, even the greeting salve. It means be well, be healthy be made whole wherever the deficiencies are they are healed and made whole again so salvation is this process of cooperation with god's grace that takes to use an old protestant hymn line a sin-sick soul mm. and brings it over the course of a lifetime of cooperating with god's grace through the sacraments principally in a life of prayer in the scriptures uh that brings that sin-sick soul to perfect health in god's kingdom
0: You know, being a student of Scripture, Father, I remember 20 years ago looking at Scripture from the perspective of what the Catholic Church has always taught, and I was amazed at how clear it was, just from Scripture itself, how the Church has been consistent since the time of the first century about what we truly believe— Uh, about salvation you know even as a as a baptist preacher many years ago i can remember that people would say well if you're baptist you must be all about baptism yet in reality we really minimized the concept of baptism whereas as catholics we see baptism as the beginning of our salvation
1: something that is often misunderstood that's exactly right it it is it is the sacramental instrument of it right so first peter three you know as i quoted my first time here we have this like form of baptism which does now save us uh what does peter say on the day of pentecost uh repent and be baptized every one of you for what the remission of sins uh but that's just the first step right that that brings us into sonship Mm. with christ in god Mm. uh but that's the beginning that's Mm. the beginning and there's a whole life before us laid out where in love we cooperate with God's law and we allow our hearts to be softened to absorb that law, such that hopefully over the course of the lifetime, uh, our will becomes God's will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done.
0: We kind of go back to that American mindset, Father Emmanuel, mm-hmm. that we just want to know for sure. And then we kind of move on in our lives, and sometimes. You know, certain people believing that salvation is a one-time static event. Well, now that I'm saved, I know I'm supposed to kind of be a good person. But what I do from this point on has nothing to do with whether or not I am saved. And
2: that can be dangerous. The point is, um, beloved listeners, I would uh, say in Scripture, salvation is a process. The Word of God, will tell us in Acts Chapter 2, verse 46. That day by day, I tended the temple, breaking bread in their homes, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who were being saved. Different from those who are saved. It means a process. We're in a process. That is why Jesus tells us those who endure to the end, will be saved. Christ didn't say that once baptized, you are saved. Once you believe in Jesus, you are saved. Remember, Judas Iscariot, once believed in Jesus. How did he end up? Hence, St. Paul used the imagery of those in a race. We are running a race. It's at the end, you talk about salvation. Like St. Paul at the end of his own race, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. Even then, he didn't say I'm already saved. He said, what remains for me is a crown of righteousness God will give me, and not only to me, to those who long for his appearing. I would like to also respond to the one of the CDF regarding salvation in community, trying to uh, uh, found what uh, Father Jeremiah has said uh, on sacred scripture also. Um, like, you see, according to St. Pope John Paul II, people are saved in the church. They are saved through the church, but always by the grace of Christ. Saved in the church. Saved through the church. So, like Father Jeremiah said, it's not one person thing, not just me alone. No, it's a family. Exodus 19, 5 to 6, God promising, I will make you a kingdom, a people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. First Peter 2 9 to 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So these are not accidentals, that's the essence. God wants to form a people, a family. We are family of God in communion with the three persons of one God. That is why Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my family. Is through the family you are nourished. Through the family you come to know Jesus. Through the family you live in Jesus. No one is an island. That is why, beloved listeners, Christ gave the church the keys of salvation. So, you need the keys. You appear upon this rock. I will build my church. Matthew 16, from verse 18. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's salvation. The church has the keys of salvation. So, according to St. Paul, I like citing scripture because. Uh, evangelical brethren do not believe any stuff unless it's read from the Bible. Accordingly, let me cite this passage, Ephesians chapter three, verses three to five, saying how the mystery was made known to me by revelation that Gentiles are co-heirs, members of Christ's body, co-partners in the gospel, and it says here. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Ephesians 3 verse 10. Through the church, it's through the church you receive the blessing, the favor, and the healing and salvation of God. Through the church. So if anyone is doubting the CDF statement that you need the church to be saved, then please read Ephesians Chapter 3, verse 10. And read Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So, beloved listeners, you are saved in the church. You are saved through the church, but by the grace of Jesus, who owns the church. Jesus owns it. Thank you. You are listening to
0: Divine Mercy Radio. Our program is called Treasures of Faith, and I'm here in the studio with Father Jeremiah and father Emmanuel and gentlemen we've got a, an interesting question here i know that a lot of our uh, catholic uh, brethren they have folks visiting with them who may not be catholics and when they invite them to come to mass it's interesting that sort of in the american spirit if you attend something you ought to be able to access whatever is being offered in this particular question people are wondering why do we not allow non-catholics to receive communion
1: well in in most traditional protestant uh, bodies most not all um they they have an open communion right and so if you are a christian if you believe on the name of christ uh and you believe that uh he is god made flesh uh you may receive communion but in most of these communities uh largely speaking What they believe about communion isn't what the Bible teaches about communion, nor is it the historic faith uh, of the church about communion. And so, uh, you know, I know Father Emmanuel is already looking up the scriptures. I I bet he's looking up at 1 Corinthians uh, Chapter uh, chapter 11 right now. But, you know, what is the communion? So the communion for a Christian, firstly, is the final step of Christian initiation that one has been initiated into the fullness of the mysteries of God's self-revelation in Christ. Uh, And this means a period of preparation, the waters of baptism being sealed by God's Holy Spirit, what the Bible often calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism by fire, uh, what we call confirmation, Eastern Christians call chrismation, uh, and then the receiving of communion. And what is that? Well, uh, we believe, uh, as Scripture teaches— that bread and wine when consecrated by an apostolic minister uh, 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 the apostles or their successors the bishops and the priests ordained by them become mystically the body and blood of Christ and and where do we base that well uh paul uses a peculiar word in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11 he says um we have th- th- this bread which we break in this in this cup which we bless is it not a participation in the body and blood of Christ? And the word there is a Greek word called koinonia. And koinonia, by this time of the writing of the New Testament, is a popular philosophical word in the Greek language handed on by, uh, by firstly Plato and Socrates uh, and then Aristotle. And it means a metaphysical participation, a participation at the level of being, into this reality. And so uh, what Paul is saying is, is that at the consecration, the bread and the wine have a metaphysical participation in the being of the Lord's risen body and blood, what medievals would later come to call transubstantiation, a changing of the substance, a changing of the nature of the thing while the accidents remain. So this is what Scripture teaches that communion is. And then it goes on to tell us that we must not partake of it unworthily or undiscernedly, mm. meaning that if i have if I'm either in mortal sin or I do not have the right faith concerning the nature of the Eucharist mm. I do not take it because mm-hmm. to take it is to imply all that it is and not just for oneself because salvation isn't me and Jesus but to to take it implies that I share the faith in the communion of the whole body of Christ. So if, if my Pentecostal friend, uh, uh, who's a minister at his church, visits me on vacation with his family, as he often does, and he attends Sunday Mass with me, he doesn't share the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith about mm. the Eucharist, mm. and he would be lying to receive the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. because he would be saying that he does. And so he understands this, and he he doesn't, because he doesn't believe what we believe, and so he understands that he can't receive, because it implies things that are not yet true. But I pray for him that one day he'll come home.
0: Well, Father, having been a Eucharistic minister, I have often noted that when good Catholics, or Catholics in general, process and receive the Body and Blood of Christ— We will often say the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and people don't respond. In reality, when we respond, you know, that literally is a profession of faith, is it not? That we genuinely believe that that bread and that wine is literally the body and blood of Christ. That's an opportunity for us to profess our faith on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the word amen uh, comes from the Hebrew amin, and and it means so be it or or yes it is you know it's an affirmation of the statement already made uh is what that word is and so that little amen at the end you know when when i say the body of christ blood of christ or corpus christi sanguis christi that amen is yes it is or yes i believe um and also in the piety of catholics uh you know it's it's customary too at the consecration of the chalice and of the host um when the priest holds uh the o- holy offerings up Uh, people quietly say to themselves, my Lord and my God. The same thing that Thomas said uh, when Thomas thrust his hands into the Lord's wounded side and hands and feet. And we make that profession of faith understanding that at the moment of the consecration, it has a metaphysical participation in the being of the risen Christ, and it is no longer ordinary bread and wine. In fact, uh, hidden under the uh, accidents or the appearances of bread and wine is my Lord and my God.
0: And again, this goes, we are in the year of the Eucharist, gentlemen, so I know that the bishop wants us to put emphasis upon the whole concept of the Eucharist. And I'm afraid that a lot of Catholics, are, they're just fearful of confronting uh, their family or friends if they accompany them to Mass. They're just afraid to say something to them because they're, they're, they're going to perhaps get quite a negative reaction if they tell them that they ought not to receive, it kind of makes us look like we're some kind of special club or something in a day and age when everything is supposed to be equal and uh, accessible to all. I mean, that's, the, that's the, the culture that we're living in. So, you know, and, and I think, too, guys, I think a lot of times Catholic people, they don't understand enough about their own faith to answer the objections,
2: And that is the point I think you hit the nail at the head at the end there. It is about helping our people to understand what we believe. You see, uh, in the word of God, uh, Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If people do not know what we believe, then they apply secular perspectives to the faith. But our faith is not about secular mentality, secular perspective, ordinary way of seeing things. This is about supernatural way of confronting mystery. It's not ordinary. For instance, when you are baptized, you come to church. You could have poured yourself water at home and you are baptized and you claim it. But that wouldn't be baptism. You come to church. And where we do spiritual dimension, where God's grace is at work, and God's authority, and that is the one that works. Remember the healing of Naaman the leper, when he came to Elisha, and Elisha told him, go to the river there and wash. And he said, I don't know better rivers, where I'm coming from, and so on. You see, he could have died into those waters. He wouldn't be well. He wouldn't be cured. But the grace of God, through the ministry of the church, makes the difference. So when we are in the church, we are in a supernatural dimension. So the Holy Communion we receive, beloved listeners, is not mere food. It is food. My flesh is food indeed. My blood, drink indeed. John six fifty five. 55. But it is not mere food. Not like Walmart bread where you can just do your own fellowship and uh, uh, human communion, sense of communion. This is supernatural. It's a mystical communion that we are being called into. This is Calvary. This is the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus we are partaking in. So it's not just welfare. That is why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Unless you eat and drink of my blood, you will not have life. What is Jesus speaking about, dear listeners? You know, your food nourishes you bodily, physical life. So Jesus wasn't speaking about physical reality, physical life dimension. He was speaking about supernatural life. The life of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is accessible to you in Holy Communion. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life. So in the church, are we discriminating? No, we are not. Everyone is called into communion. Everyone is called into fellowship with the church. But the person has to do it the right way. Baptism is the gateway, the door to the sacraments. I remember struggling with some people some time ago who do jail ministry. And I tried to tell them, when you go to jail, you are not discriminating. Give communion only to those who are properly baptized and practicing Catholics within the dimension of the ministry you are doing, practicing not as regular people, but at least they come to the ministry, they pray, they believe, and they share. But what do they do? They just go and say, we don't want to discriminate anybody, we give communion to everybody. No! Holy communion is not your property. It's not what you want to dispose of as you will. You have to follow what your mandate requires. The mandate given to you by the bishop as a minister of Holy Communion or extraordinary minister is to do things as the church does it. Remember the words of Jesus. I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. So every action we perform through any ministry, see yourself as an agent of the church. Agent of the church. What I was searching for when Jeremiah was, uh, say, for the one who's looking through scriptures, was about the one of Old Testament. Old Testament. What was the first Samuel chapter 21? When people were hungry, and they came to, David came to the priest, Ah Ahimelech, asking for, The bread of the presence that they may eat. They had no other food to eat. And that was Old Testament. And Ahimelech told David, Please, I don't have ordinary bread. I have bread of the presence. Holy bread, which only priests can eat. But I can offer it to you as long as your men have kept themselves chaste. Chaste. Chastity. So that was Old Testament. Dear listeners, even more in the New, where St. Paul now says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, 27, if you eat and drink unworthily, you are eating judgment and condemnation. So let no one encourage falsely because you say you don't want to discriminate or because you are afraid. Do not be one who will aid and abet in one eating and drinking falsely. It's important to clarify and help people to know God loves you, but you are called to communion. Come and join the church. Come and believe what you believe, and God will give you the fullness of communion in the Holy Church. Thank you.
0: Well, you're listening to Treasures of Faith. Uh, We have to take a break, but we'll be back in just a few moments with Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel. This is Apologetics Friday. Stay with us. Welcome back to Treasures of Faith. I am Bill Gent, and I'm here in the studio with Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel. And we're just having a, a really enlightening discussion surrounding the subject of the Eucharist. And certainly, the challenge that it is for many Catholics when not Catholics want to receive communion. So, we're still kind of pursuing this question, gentlemen. Father Jeremiah, you had something to offer on uh, this whole concept of do this in remembrance of me.
1: Right. And, and this becomes somewhat of the divide, right, between Protestants and Catholics on the nature of Holy Communion what happens is, is is this is is that uh most protestant bodies see that word remembrance and they picture it in the way that we as moderns would picture what remembrance is and and when i say remember something what 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 do i envision well a mental recollection of a past event and so for them thinking that this is what remembrance is Uh, They presume that when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, and then when Paul records him saying such in 1 Corinthians, which, by the way, is the first written text concerning the Eucharist, because 1 Corinthians, yeah, 1 Corinthians before the Gospels. So what happens is that uh, they misread that word. That word is another one of those words when you know the original languages, Mm -hmm. That is loaded. So, what does Jesus say? He says, Do this in anamnesis of me. Anamnesis is a Greek word that has a very peculiar function. You see, for the ancients, whether Hebrews or Greeks, there's not just one sense of time like we have, but rather there are two. And so, the Greeks and the Hebrews before them would speak firstly of chronos, right? And it's where we get the word chronology. And that is the succession of experience marked by the finitude of a creature, limited by the senses, right? So I experience the world in a linear progression, and I take into myself what I experience through the agency of the five senses, and I mark this through whatever demarcator I want to use. Right now we currently use days and months and, You know, we we mark that based on the cycles of the sun or the moon or the stars, right? So we talk about years, you know, days and months. That is linear time. However, the ancients also had another concept of time, and the Greeks would call this kairos, now in the secular word kairos had to do with rhetoric it was the opportune moment to make your argument right you you butter up the audience we kind of do this in sermons too you butter up the audience then you come in with the sucker punch yeah, of the point the sleeve, right? yeah so so that's in the in the secular usage of the word kairos is the opportune moment to invade with your point and to convince but in the religious sense kairos is God's time you see God is unchanging. God as the infinite transcendent deity uh does not experience time as we do. So Hugh of St Victor for example describes God's time and God's epistemology in this clever little phrase, God's eternal now. So everything that is experienced by humans in a liter- in a in a linear fashion uh, from from the Big Bang or the dawn of creation all the way into the second coming of Christ, uh, which we can demarcate over millions of years, uh, is in God. All in one singular eternal moment. And the way that I like to explain it is, imagine, go back to your calculus class, imagine a circle or a sphere set in motion. Right? So, The radius of that sphere is in movement and it leads that circle or that sphere to roll wherever it is going to roll. But if we follow the mathematics, when you get to the center of that sphere, that center is both the source of motion and does not move. And so that is a good analogy to try and get at what is this God's time. And so the function of anamnesis, the word that we translate as remembrance, is the function of taking a point on linear time and bringing it into participation with God's eternal now, where all things are present in one single eternal moment. And so when we anamnesis, when we do this in remembrance, me, on Friday morning, the 2nd of March, 2017, the moment I begin Mass and do this in anamnesis of me, become present to God's eternal now, which also includes Calvary, Mm -hmm. the Last Supper, the Resurrection. Mm -hmm. I am there, and they are with me in a real metaphysical way. Even Even the Jews understood this in the past, right? So if you've ever been to a Passover Haggadah or meal, the youngest son, or the youngest child, if they're Reformed, will ask the father of the house four questions to begin the Passover narrative. And he will say, Father, why is this night different than all other nights? Now, this is your 5,700 and some odd years in Jewish history. And the Passover was over 3,000 years ago. But they will say, why is this night? Because they understand that when they fulfill God's command of worship that they become present to that moment this is the night when God delivers us notice the present tense from bondage to slavery in Egypt because that moment 300 years ago or 3000 years ago this moment now at the passover are one single moment in God and anamnesis is the function by God's grace through God's invitation to divine worship that bring us mystically into that eternal now so that we can experience in person the mysteries of our salvation and the grace that is present there. So at the moment that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, and we do, we become present to the Passover. We become present to the Last Supper. We become present to Calvary, standing there with Mary and John. We become present at the empty tomb with Mary as she peers in and Peter as he confirms it. And
0: it's as if we're being lifted into the eternal. It's as if we're being lifted to heaven at the moment that the consecration is taking place. And
1: don't we say that, right? So the, so the priest in, in dialogue with the people, these are one of the most ancient texts that we have that still survive from the early, early, early churches celebration of the Eucharist. The priest will say, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. And then the priest will say, lift up, up your, your heart. hearts, right? Mm. Sirsum corda in Latin, one of the most ancient liturgical texts that we have. Sirsum corda. And the proper translation of the response is not we lift them up to the Lord, which is still a bad translation that we have. It is we have them lifted mm. up to the Lord because it's mm. the function of God's divine grace in this remembrance that lifts us up to God's eternal now. Lift up your hearts. We have them lifted up to the Lord. We have been assumed mystically into God's eternal now where we literally taste and are mm-hmm. fed by mm-hmm. the sacrifice of Calvary, the Passover bread, which is his flesh that nourishes our soul. So,
0: Father Emmanuel, why, why, are, why do I pe- our people say then, well, you know, I go to Mass, but it's boring.
2: Okay, I mean, it's you. just,
0: I mean, think about it. I mean, it's so, with what Father Jeremiah has just shared. I mean, how can it be boring if we're brought into the very presence of God? Obviously, we're lifted into the heavenlies.
2: Yes, we are lifted up. As Father Jeremiah said, we, God has lifted us up. The grace of God is the beginning and end of everything we do. Jesus is the source and summit. The author and finisher of our faith, so he lifts us up into his presence. But it will be boring if we don't understand what is going on. That is why the church always emphasizes the need for liturgical catechesis. You see, and I would like to also, as it were, um, uh, re emphasize what Father Jeremiah is saying. In a little layman's language. <laughs> if I put it that way, yes. Not <laughs> calculus. <laughs> Not calculus, yes. Uh, the Greek word, like anemnesis, is same like the Hebrew, zakah. It's all about making present in the here and now what may seem to have happened 2,000 years ago. Remember, with God, a thousand years is like a single day. A single day, like a thousand years. That is why uh, it's called eternal now. Meaning, God has no past, present, and future. God is the one who is, who was, who is to come. He is always now. That's the point. So, when we say, for instance, do this in remembrance of me. It's not, oh, I forgot. Oh, I forgot. No. That's what Father Jeremiah is explaining. You know, the Bible will say, God remembers his people. God will call out and say, Moses, 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 Moses. He will answer, here I am. I have heard the cry of my people. I have remembered the promise I made to Abraham. I have remembered. This is a very important line for evangelical and Protestant friends about the biblical meaning of remembrance. So that is why Father Jeremiah said it's not about recollection. I have remembered. Oh, God forgot something. Are you kidding me? (laughs) God does not forget. So what does God mean by remember? Meaning God, so to speak, is zooming his love into the present context. Bringing it here and now. Meaning we're experiencing Calvary here and now. We're experiencing redemption here and now. That is why the Mass is real presence, real presence, so God does not forget. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, Christ was giving a guarantee that any time Mass is celebrated, he is there. Not just like just where two or three gather in my name, I am there, which is also substantial presence since we cannot have to do all different Christ, but in the Eucharist, Christ is guaranteeing us that he is truly bodily present, body and soul and divinity present at every mass. Hence, it is Calvary. We are really re-experiencing, we are entering into it. In that way, what Jesus did In the upper room or on Good Friday on the cross, it's not lost in the past. I am with you always, doing it anew, so to speak, at every time you celebrate the Eucharist. That's what we are doing. So it is holistically real presence. So beloved listeners, please do not always feel shy of explaining your faith. Do it respectfully. Know that we are not confused. What Jesus has given us is real presence. So when people come to Mass, they must know that each time we are celebrating Mass, what we see is not bread bought from any company we ordered it from. Once consecrated, Jesus has confirmed his word. I am the bread come down from heaven. So once consecrated, Jesus is down from heaven. That is the now. And that has no past, has no present, no future. He's he's just there. That's the Calvary. That's the remembrance action. So we enter into the mystery. May God bless you.
0: You're listening to Treasures of Faith, And I am here with Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel. Uh, Father Jeremiah, I know that uh, certainly our culture, especially if you think about the Protestant world, has been influenced by dualism and Gnosticism. This whole idea of separating the physical from the spiritual, do you think that has any impact on how some people kind of view Eucharist, how they view this whole question that we're considering about is Jesus truly present in that bread and
1: wine? Yeah, I think so. You know, ever ever since, I mean, the, the philosophical underpinnings, for example, the Protestant Reformation, or nominalism, uh, and and it, it's uh, simply put, it is it is the categorization of knowledge uh, into different categories, uh, and the idea that we can't know the thing itself, but we can know the name we give it, right? And so this led in the Protestant world and in Western civilization as a whole, which we inherit, uh, Protestant Western civilization is what the United States in- inherits. This hyper individualism, right, and this in this hyper need to compartmentalize things. And so uh, I I think most especially that affects uh, people's view of the Eucharist, right, and the tendency uh, for them to view it uh, simply in terms of a recollection of a symbol. Uh, from the past, but not this uh, holistic uh, marriage between heaven and earth. You know, what what Jesus says, you could literally translate. Uh, you know, if, if, if I were in an academic Greek class and I were translating that phrase from an academic perspective, I could translate it, do this to make me present or do this to bring me here. That is a literal and valid translation of that text. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes we think we're so smart. We think we're so wise. But when we look back, in so many ways, the ancients had it right. Their vision was much broader and much more liberal in the proper sense than ours is. We tend to constrict and to divide, and that's Mm -hmm. the inheritance that we have from nominalism Mm -hmm. and the
0: Protestant Reformation. Sure. Sure. I know that one of the things that really impacted me some 20 years ago before I came back uh, to the faith was recognizing the significance of the sacraments— in how it really appealed to every one of my senses. I had sort of kind of fallen into this trap that, you know, the Bible alone sort of mentality, it's all about words on a page. And yes, I sensed that the Spirit was somehow connected, but I lost a sense of how God wants to touch us very
1: tangibly in this physical world. That's exactly right. And isn't that the beginning of the salvation story, Right. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Uh, And as John puts it so beautifully, that the Word became flesh. Kyhologos sarks. The Word became flesh. That is the sacrament. So when Catholics talk about Christ being the primordial sacrament, uh, that is what it is. Mm. That God, in Mm. order to save us, didn't do something from outside of time. His eternity impregnated time in our nature. Mm. God precisely saved us through the union of his divine nature with the human nature of Jesus of Nazareth in the hypostatic union. He is the sacrament. And so he is going to reach us. He is going to save us by, if you will, the natural things that he created us with, Mm. right? And Mm. so these natural things are impregnated with God's grace so that what they do in the physical realm They now do superabundantly in the spiritual realm. A bath becomes the washing away of original sin. A meal of bread and wine becomes the feasting on the body and blood of Christ. The anointing with oil for strength becomes the firming up of the spirit uh, for the walking through of this valley of tears in the battle of life, right? So the laying on of hands becomes a distinction in the soul for, for ministry and service. Um, so on and so forth and and again, the ancient world gets this right, mm. so even when Augustine uses the language uh, of uh, of uh, of a symbol he 's talking about a thing that possesses the reality that it symbolizes right there's there 's the reality impregnates the sign itself, right and he would use the example like like um, you know if, if i if I tell somebody I love you, I can say it, but you know there 's something in my embrace with them or my kiss with them that is symbolic of that love, but there's something of that love. Mm. And that's what he says on the natural world. That's what's going on. How much more when God touches these seven symbols, these seven signs, he makes them do what they symbolize because he he took our human nature and wedded it to himself.
0: You know, and unfortunately, Father, um, people that do not understand this from that perspective, can begin to somehow think that the sacraments are some kind of magic. You know, that, and some people really look at—I've even had Catholics kind of talk about not understanding the foundation of what sacraments truly are. They can— Lead themselves to believe this. These, these, these are just kind of, the priest is doing a magical trick here. Father Jeremiah, you had something you wanted to share, oh, <laughs> Father Emmanuel, oh, I'm sorry, Father Emmanuel.
2: Oh <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I was going to uh, compliment uh, what Father Jeremiah was saying about the ancients had it right, beloved listeners. Those words are very powerful. The ancients had it right. Why? Because it's consistent with the word of God. Let me share, for instance, 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. So what has come down from the beginning? One good uh, theologian of the church, St. Vincent of Larence, said, What has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. Believed everywhere, universality. Always, meaning from the beginning. And by all, by the whole church. So in the first century, what did the church believe? In the second century, what did the church believe? About the Eucharist, about real presence. In the third, in the fourth, in the fifth Dear listeners, let us say categorically that symbolic presence began in the 1600s. So that is outside what scripture is saying. When it says in 1 John 2, 24, Let what you have heard, let what you have practiced from the beginning remain in you. Remember St. Paul's statement, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. Telling us to hold fast to the traditions we were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter, the same context. Holding to what you have heard. Now listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking in John's gospel to the apostles and see what he says to them. Haven't told them the Holy Spirit will be the primary witness? Christ told them in John 15:27, and you also are witnesses. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. From the beginning. And this ties into apostolic succession. Remember in Acts chapter 1 from verse 15 when they were going to choose a replacement for Judas Iscariot? The condition that was given by Peter, the one Christ appointed, she shepherd, feed my lambs, look after my sheep, what you bind on earth, a boundary heaven. The condition he gave was, we must choose one of the men who had been with us the whole time. Christ went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism until the day he was taken up. So only those who have been there from the beginning, the Catholic Church has been there from the beginning. Beloved listeners, it doesn't take rocket science to know that consistent with the ways of scripture I have cited. That is the primary place to rely on. As a way that what was from the beginning abides in you. This is not to denigrate anyone. It's to get people to rethink. To know what was the belief in the first century, in the second, in the third, don't just read Bible that you don't know the foundation, you don't know the background, and you don't know what the text is saying. Like for the Jeremiah try to explain what is behind the text. If I write a letter to you, my letter cannot say everything. There is a world behind the text. And that world is the world of sacred tradition. And that is accessible to you only in those who had been there from the beginning may God bless you
0: you know father emmanuel mentioned that you know the real presence uh really wasn't challenged in the christian world until the 16th century i mean most catholics probably are unaware of that i mean this this was the continued teaching and belief of christian people for some 1,500 years before it was clearly challenged. I mean, historically, is that the fact, Father?
1: Yeah, for the most part. Again, there would be different philosophical systems that would help Christians to try and explain the mystery as best as possible, and so in the West uh, it was uh, Aquinas' recovery of Aristotle uh, that gave us the language of substance and accidents, and and to be able to describe this sacred mystery as transubstantiation, uh, there was a brief monastic skirmish in the 1100s about the nature of the Eucharist, Uh, but again, very clearly when a particular monk uh, tried to say that it it is it is just a symbol, uh, he was quickly disciplined. And why? Because of what Father Emmanuel said. This is not what was said by the Lord. This is not what has been believed and handed on by the faithful. And so even in that one attempt to try and twist things, it represented something other than what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. And we see this, and, and I won't apologize for saying it as we mark these 500 years from the Reformation, uh, what Protestants believe about the Eucharist is a fundamental departure from the Christian faith. Mm. It is something Mm. other than what the Scripture teaches and what has been handed on uh, by the faithful. It is something, but it is not Christ's doctrine. Mm. I know I mentioned earlier that Bishop
0: Noonan has announced uh, in the Orlando Diocese the year of the Eucharist, and so, you know, I just feel very blessed that we've had this discussion today emphasizing exactly what we believe about the Eucharist, and it has been the continual teaching of the Catholic Church from the time of Jesus, and it's just wonderful for us to revisit that on a regular basis so that we might grow in our understanding and continue the tradition— and hopefully, encourage other Catholic Christians to see the significance of it and perhaps to attend Mass, hopefully more regularly, but also with greater devotion. Well, Father Jeremiah and Father Emmanuel, I'm so glad that uh, you have been with us today on this Apologetics Friday. Uh, next week, perhaps, uh, if we have the opportunity to get together again, we can talk about maybe the authority that the church offers so that we might better be prepared to answer those who ask those kind of difficult questions. You're listening to Treasures of Faith. I hope that you'll join us on uh, Monday at 11 a.m. We're hoping that Bishop Noonan from the Orlando Diocese and Bishop Barbarito from Palm Beach Diocese will be joining us by phone. Have a wonderful weekend, and God bless you all.